Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Thank you. It's a joy to be with you today. I'd like to ask that you join with me in prayer. Father, it is our delight to acknowledge that you are the source of every good and perfect gift. Lord Jesus, you are the the vine and we are the branches. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit, this time in the word will be meaningless. But we know that the Holy Spirit has been given to lead us and guide us into all truth. So we pray that you would just overcome my own weakness, overcome my own limitations, and open up for all of us the word of God so that we can grow. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to ask that you turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to be looking this morning at verses 10 through 13. Ever since I was a a young boy, I love movies about secret treasure. Uh, I I remember watching Treasure Island, and I don't think it's ever going to get better than Long John Silver with a, a map with a big X on it. Um, Recently, I watched National Treasure, which is one of the hokier movies I think I've ever seen, but I enjoyed it. I admit it. Um, The idea that there is a secret treasure map on the back of the Declaration of Independence, uh, and that was kind of interesting, and that the treasure was actually in New York City under Wall Street. That was fascinating. So I didn't know that, Um, but that that was amazing. Probably my favorite secret treasure story is the Count of Monte Cristo, and I just love the idea of the vast treasure that is uh, that a, a treasure map that an abbey, Abbey Faria, had in a cross around his neck, led Edmond Dantes to uh, fabulous wealth, which he then misused for revenge. But that's a different story. But the idea of secret treasure may seem hokey to us, and we're kind of you know realist, 21st century realist. But it's ironic that Jesus actually uses it to talk about the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 13:44, he says, "The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, and a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold everything he had." and bought that field. Recently, I was meditating on that parable and just thinking about it, and I I was thinking essential to the parable is the idea of breaking open the the box and finding out what's inside. I mean, don't you think that man would be a fool if he didn't do that? Imagine if he sold everything on a hunch. It's like, I found this incredible old box in a field, and I think that there's treasure inside. I'm going to sell everything I have. Imagine doing that and finding a dead animal inside or a bunch of old parchments or a bunch of dirt or rocks. And so I think we could assume that there's a certain kind of inventory that we should take of the treasure that we find in Christ. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to lift out what Jeremiah Burroughs calls one of the rare jewels of Christianity, and that is Christian contentment. I want to lift up a gem, and I want to just hold it for the short time that we have this rare jewel of Christian contentment. I want to kind of twist it in the light a little bit. I want some of the light to catch the facets, and I want us to be really ravished, captivated by the idea of a lasting, abiding Christian contentment that flows from Paul's words here in Philippians 4, 10 through 13. Look with me at the text. I'm going to read along, and then I'm just going to kind of unpack it as we go. 
Verse 10 and following, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you had been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Do you see that in verse 12? Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. The kind of contentment that Paul talks about here is so rare. My conviction is that as you go on in your lives of ministry, of service, you're gonna go all over the world. And Southeastern's an incredible launching pad for world evangelization and missions. It's such a pleasure to be a trustee with the IMB and see so many that have been trained here at Southeastern going to all over the world. But my conviction is wherever you go all over the world, in the States or overseas, you're going to seek to establish a pattern of heart contentment in the Lord and the world, the flesh and the devil are gonna assault it every moment. And the success of your ministry will in large part depend on how well you also can learn the secret of being content in any and every situation. My desire this morning is that as we meditate on these uh, verses, you'll begin to see the basic building blocks and the concepts that Paul unfolds and that, that we see in scripture on this issue of abiding contentment. Our teacher ultimately is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the pioneer, the captain of our faith. It says in the book of Hebrews, he gets preeminence in all things in Colossians. He is the greatest display of Christian contentment there ever has been or ever will be. The greatest teacher of Christian contentment. So we give him first place. And all teaching that comes to us by the power of the spirit on Christian contentment comes ultimately from, from Christ. But we're gonna have two other human teachers under Christ, and we're gonna spend most of our time with the Apostle Paul as we unfold Philippians here. But I'm gonna revert to Jeremiah Burroughs' book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment at the very end. And I wanna give his definition of Christian contentment and unpack it before I apply all of this to us. So let's begin with the Apostle Paul. And I wanna start with his credentials. Does Paul have the right to talk to us about Christian contentment? I mean, whenever you go to a seminar, a TED Talk, something like that, you wanna find out what are the credentials of the person speaking. And Paul has, I would argue, other than Christ, the greatest credentials to speak to us on this topic there has ever been in church history. I don't think there's anyone else in church history that has the level of credentials that the Apostle Paul had to teach us Christian contentment in any and every situation. Well, look at Paul's immediate circumstances here in Philippians. He's in prison again for the gospel. In chapter one, he's ruminating on whether he's going to die or not. So he's facing death. It's possible that he's going to be executed. In the first century Roman prisons, there would be no internal system of support, no food or heat or blankets or any of that. That all had to come from friends and family that would courageously bring you um, what you needed to eat and to be warm in the in the prison. And so the Philippians had heard that Paul was in, in, in prison for the gospel. And so they sent a messenger, Epaphroditus, with money to care for his needs. And so there he is in prison. He's suffering. And so that right away speaks of his 
credibility to speak to us on Christian contentment, but it really extends to his entire life. You remember when Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, he was blinded by the light. Ananias was told to go lay hands on him that he would be able to receive his sight. And he didn't want to go. He said, effectively, send someone else. But the Lord Jesus said, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And he did. And from the beginning of his ministry, Paul suffered like no one else in church history. Listen to his credentials in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day on the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. That was the school where Paul learned to be content. And again, looking at 20 centuries of church history, I don't find anyone who even actually comes close, including the fact that Paul was a martyr for the, he died for the gospel right to the end. Now, the Philippians had already seen it. Think about the example that Paul and Silas set from the planting of the Philippian church of joyful suffering for Christ. In Acts 16, we have that account. And you remember what what happened there. Paul and Silas are ministering and there was a slave girl there who was demon-possessed and earned a lot of money for her owners by fortune telling. And Paul just gets sick of this slave girl walking behind them saying, these men are servants of the most high God. And, all and he didn't, it's almost like he didn't exercise the demon out of compassion for her, but of annoyance and irritation. I don't know that that's true, but it seems to read that way in the account. But he turns around after several days of this and drives the demon out. Well, her owners were very angry that their chance of making money was gone and they had Paul and Silas seized. The authorities stripped them, beat them publicly, threw them in the Philippian jail. They were thrown into the inner cell. Their feet were fastened and sought in stocks. Their backs were bleeding. They had had nothing to eat. They'd had nothing to drink. And the text tells us that at midnight, Paul and Silas were singing and praying. I mean, that's got to be one of the great moments in church history, one of the great moments in the history of contentment. I often think about that moment. I think, are my, are my sufferings anywhere close to Paul and Silas? And I yearn to react like that. I yearn to be so supernaturally filled with the joy of the Lord that I can sing. And it says in the text, all the other prisoners were listening to them. And then suddenly comes the most astonishing, miraculous, surgical strike earthquake there has ever been, such that the the prison doors fly open and everybody's chains fall off, but nobody's hurt. And, And no one escapes. And the Philippian jailer sees the doors open and assumes that his prisoners have all fled and just Roman justice being what it is, he's his life is forfeit. So he draws out his sword, he's about to fall on his sword and commit suicide, when out of the darkness comes a voice that saved his life and his soul. 
I would think in all scripture there's not a, a clear example of a soul dangling by a slim thread over hell as that Philippian jailer. Don't harm yourself. We are all here. And he goes in and falls trembling before Paul and Silas, draws him out and asks that question, what must I do to be saved? So I would argue that their contentment was the platform for the Philippian jailer's salvation and for the beginning of aspects of the Philippian church. So he had credentials. He had the right to speak to the Philippian church. They knew all about it. Now in verse 10, he wants to thank them for the money. It's gotta be the greatest thank you note ever. An inspired thank you note. And so he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord in the money. That's what he's talking about. If you look at verse 18, he says, I've received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs. So he's talking about money and Epaphroditus. So you can picture them, Paul and Epaphroditus sitting in the prison and there's this bag of silver coins between them. And he's writing, it's like, I'm so happy about the money. I'm so excited about the money. Wait, not like you think. I don't want you to misunderstand. Paul was a man just like us. Of course, he knew the money meant food for him. It meant warm, a warm blanket, different needs would be met. He knew that. But he wants to tell them something. It's a teaching opportunity. He said, what I really want is I want to talk to you about how I'm reacting and why I'm so filled with joy. I'm not filled with joy because I'm in need. Verse 11, for I've actually learned to be content whatever the circumstances. So he takes that as a teaching, teaching tool because he knows, as he says, as says at the end of Philippians chapter 1, they are going to go through the same kind of suffering he is. They're already going through it. And he wants them to suffer well. He wants them to suffer evidently filled with joy and courage. That obvious hope that they have in Christ, it needs to shine like a light so that they can hold out the gospel, as he says. And so he wants to teach them about Christian contentment. So look how he describes it, verse 11 and 12. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So two things. Christian contentment is a secret to be learned. Secondly, Paul had learned it. So on the first, it's a secret to be learned, meaning it's not guaranteed. It's not part of the original equipment of salvation. At the moment of salvation, you get full forgiveness of sins. You're justified, declared righteous in God's sight by the imputed righteousness of Christ. All of your guilt imputed to Christ and he suffered under the wrath of God to remove it. There is no condemnation for you. You receive the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. You receive adoption into the family of God and many other blessings besides, but you don't get this. This is not part of the original equipment at the moment of, of conversion. You have to learn this secret. And I would contend the overwhelming majority of Christians never really become skillful at Christian contentment. I wouldn't say they're never content. I'm just saying that they don't become evidently, obviously skillful in this so that they are consistently content in Christ no matter what the circumstances. I think the actual overwhelming majority of Christians go effectively, generally kind of unhappy into heaven. It's like the normal Christian day to be discontent in any and every circumstance or specific circumstances. 
So this is a secret to be learned. It's not guaranteed, but be encouraged, Paul's saying, I have learned it. It is attainable. It's not impossible. It's something you actually can learn. Now, what does he say? What, does he, what word does he use for contentment? This is a very interesting thing. I did not realize this. The word that he uses that's translated content in all of our translations is literally from the, from the Greek, self-sufficient. I have learned to be self-sufficient. And if you know anything about Paul or any of the teaching or even what I prayed earlier about the vine and the branches and all that, Jesus is the vine. Apart from him, we can do nothing. He says in 2 Corinthians 1, I was in an intense suffering in Asia to teach me to no longer rely on myself but on God. And so it seems to be very, very difficult to know what this word even means, self-sufficient. When I think of content, I think carnal thoughts. I don't know why. I think about Thanksgiving after the meal. You know, you've all eaten about 10% more than you should have, maybe. And you know that full, warm, sleepy feeling that comes because of the chemicals in the turkey, I guess. And you're there kind of barely paying attention to the football game. That's, that is not Christian contentment. That is not what we're talking about, not at all. So what is this self-sufficiency? What does he mean? And I've pondered this for a long time. It's a difficult thing for me to understand. But I think it goes to a deep theological concept concerning God. An attribute of God is his independence, Wayne Grudem calls it, independence. A more technical theological term is the aseity of God, which literally means the from-selfness of God. So a definition of that is that God exists from himself. God owes his existence and completeness as God to nothing outside of himself. God's act of creation was not constrained by anything outside of him, nor was the inner impulse to create owing to a deficiency or a defect. God does not need us or anything else outside of himself to be God or to be happy. Creation does not complete God. That's from a John Piper article on the aseity of God. So that opened the door for me a little bit. The Westminster Confession of Faith says God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself. And he is alone in and of himself, all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures, which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. God needs nothing from the created universe at all. That doesn't mean that the created universe can't bring him pleasure and joy or be satisfied with it. He actually throughout scripture is very satisfied in us as his creatures in creation as very good. But he doesn't need it. I actually think this is a, a doorway into understanding what Paul means. Effectively what he's saying is, I was content before your money came. I'll be content while I'm eating the food that it buys and I'll be content after the money's gone. The money actually doesn't change my level of soul satisfaction at all. And actually nothing does. Paul effectively is saying, not self-sufficient, but like God's self-sufficiency, God's sufficient. If I have God, I have everything I need. If I have Christ, I have everything I need. And so what that means is the creature doesn't add anything to my soul. Now, 
Aseity, the independence of God, is often called an incommunicable attribute. It's like it's not true of us. And yet this is like, oh, wait a minute. We are very different from God. We're creatures. We're dependent. But as it turns out, do we really need anything creaturely to come in from the outside? Let's test this. Let's talk about basic physical needs. Does Paul need, what's the first thing you think about? Most of you, the first thing you think about is food. But actually, the first thing you need physically is not food, and it's not water. It's air. I mean, without air, three to four minutes, you'll be dead. Without water, I don't know, what is it, three to four days? Without food, I know it's hard to believe, three to four weeks, you can make it. What if Paul doesn't get those things? Let's take air. What if his air is cut off? What will happen? Well, guess what? He's going to die. And he covers that back in Philippians 1. That's better by far. It's better by far to depart and be with Christ. Oh, if that's how you're going to think, then I guess you don't need water or food either. That's right. Neither do you need to be noticed and commended for the service you do for Jesus. You don't need to be thanked. You don't need a comfortable life. You don't need a bed to sleep on. You don't need, you can make the list as long as you want. You don't actually need any of those things if you have Christ. Like C.S. Lewis said in his sermon, Weight of Glory, he who has Christ and all the world has no more than he who has Christ alone. So in the mathematics of all that, all the world equals nothing when it comes to your soul. That's what Paul's saying. That's what contentment is. Now, that's a revolutionary concept. Now, we ask this question, what is the secret? How had he learned the secret of being so independent from the creature, so independent from creaturely things? Well, the secret's right in the text. It's easy to miss it, but it's right there. And it's frequently taken out of context and misquoted, but it's in verse 13. I can do everything through him who strengthens me. He doesn't tell everything about it, but what he's saying is that contentment, abiding contentment, is a display of spiritual, supernatural strength. It's a strong man, a strong woman that's like this. Conversely, a continual complaining, murmuring, negative attitude is a display of weakness. It doesn't take much to move you out of contentment into complaining and murmuring. So that's a display of weakness. So he's saying, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, through the work of Christ in my soul, I can be lastingly, consistently content, satisfied in Christ. That's the secret. Well, we don't have much more time. I want to skip all of these things. That was a dream, thinking I could do all that here today. So what I want to do with the few minutes that I have left, I want to give you Jeremiah Burroughs' definition and then apply this to our hearts. Jeremiah Burroughs was a Puritan pastor who lived in the 17th century. He was part of the Westminster Assembly. Uh, died while that was going on. Very distressed over the factions and divisions there were among that group. And, and preached a series of sermons on Christian contentment to help. Uh, he died before the book was assembled, so it was assembled by other editors in 1648. The rare jewel of Christian contentment. It's a typical Puritan book uh, filled with biblical insights, thick writing style, illustrations that are hard for us to grasp, but others that are amazing. But what I want to do is I want to give you his definition. And it's very dense, but I'm going to unpack it for you. Jeremiah Burroughs defines Christian contentment this way. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit that freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. 
So let me break that apart. First, it's a frame of spirit. So there's like three basic ideas. Frame of spirit, I'll talk about that. God's wise and fatherly disposal, and then free, joyful submission. Those are the three basic ideas. So first of all, it's a frame of spirit. What that means, it's an archaic kind of expression, but it's an attitude, a demeanor, a heart state. It's an approach, an outlook. That's what Christian contentment is. And he, and he describes it with four adjectives. First of all, it's sweet. It's a sweet spirit. People who are, are, who are characterized by Christian contentment are just a delight to be around. They're sweet to be around. I tend to think of it, the opposite words would be, like in terms of taste, sour or bitter. You think about a bitter person. Bitter people are unpleasant to be around. And they're usually bitter about the past. Some bad thing that happened to them in the past and now they're very bitter. Or sour would be, you know, an outlook on the present or the future. Like I think about Eeyore. You know Eeyore? Not a very good day today, that kind of thing. Have you ever met people like that? Come on, have you ever been like that? Just a sour outlook, bitter outlook. Christian contentment is the opposite of those. There's a sweetness to these kind of people. They, they don't hold grudges. They're forgiving. They are optimistic and hope-filled about the present and the future. Sweet. Inward. It's an inward frame of spirit. In other words, it's not an acting job. You're not putting on a happy face. You're not learning how to fake it till you make it. That's not Christian contentment. It's, it's, an, it's an inward work. And it's quiet. It's like when Jesus said, peace be still, and, and everything gets quiet under his mighty hand. There's a quietness as opposed to a roiling, tumultuous spirit that's discontent and moving around like demons roaming through the earth or like Satan going and just can't ever get settled in. That's a, that's a discontent spirit. This is, this is a quietness that comes over. And it's a gracious frame of spirit. And the Puritans meant by that, it can only be worked in by sovereign grace. You can't get at it by turning over a new leaf or by making a New Year's resolution or being more determined. It's something that God works in you by his sovereign strength. I can do everything through him who strengthens me. It's a sovereign strength that comes over you. So that's what it is, a frame of spirit described by those four adjectives, sweet, inward, quiet, gracious. The next part of the definition is God's wise and fatherly disposal. The word disposal is a little difficult for us, so let's say decisions about you or decrees about your life. God has covered your life in his own decisions. It says in Psalm 139, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. This is the doctrine of God's providence. And I'll say this, if you don't embrace wholeheartedly and in a robust manner, the doctrine of God's providence, which is his sovereign control over the tiniest details of life, Christian contentment will elude you. You will think that something that's happened to you is bad luck or karma or some for fate or something like that. Or, you, or you'll think that God's saying, look, I didn't do this. You will not understand how sovereign and loving and powerful God is. But look how he describes his wise and fatherly disposal. He uses these words, wise. God's wisdom is infinite, far beyond anything we can imagine. He is very wise in how he orchestrates the world. And I love the word fatherly. I mean, he could have chosen, Burroughs could have chosen the word kingly. And it would have, been, would have been accurate, theologically accurate, but not so warm, not so loving. A king does what's best for his kingdom. 
And if that means sending young men off to their death to, to defeat an invading army, he will do it and still be thought of as a wise king. A father does what's best for his children. And what's beautiful about the providence of God, those things are perfectly harmonized. What's best for the kingdom is best for the children. They're the same. And so you start to see that. And as a result, you freely and with delight submit to what God's doing in your life. You don't fight it. Discontent is rebellion. It's a murmuring rebellion in which you're not accepting what God has chosen, what he is choosing to do in your life. Well, there's a lot more I could say about that, but I want to just apply this with the few minutes that we have left. What are the benefits of this? I just want to go completely positive and say, what are the benefits of Christian contentment? First and foremost, it glorifies God. It brings God great glory to see his children, especially going through suffering with a sweet submission and a loving trust to the heavenly father. There's actually a delight in it, like Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, that you actually can imitate Christ like that. God is greatly glorified by that. Think about the end of Habakkuk chapter three, where it says, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes in the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. That just brings God great glory. Augustine said in his confessions, he loves you too little who loves anything that he gets. I'll put it in in modern language. Anything that he gets for its own sake, disconnected, O God, from you. And so for us to say, I'll love you if you'll give me this, give me that, and if you won't give me that, I won't love you, that dishonors God. Conversely, if despite the fact that you're not getting what you've asked for, you're not having your your desires met, you still trust in him, you still love him, that brings great glory to God. Secondly, it's a platform for evangelism and missions. As I already pointed out from Acts 16, why do you think the Philippian jailer asked them, what must I do to be saved? Well, 1 Peter 3.15 tells why. Always be prepared to give anyone an answer, uh, anyone who asks you to give a reason for what? For the hope that you have, the hope that's in you. That hope, though, has to be evident it has to be obvious, and, and the more supernatural that hope is, the more they're going to want to know, what, how do you have what, what I don't have? Like the blood of martyrs is seed for the church. How can you die so courageously? I don't have that. And so Roman citizens were asking, how can I lose my fear of death like you have? So an evident, obvious hopefulness, especially in adverse circumstances, is a great platform for evangelism and missions. And don't think God doesn't know that. He's going to put you like a, like a light up on a lampstand so it gives light to everyone in the house. And that lampstand is going to be your suffering. But you have to go through it well. If you go through it like a pagan, they won't ask you to give a reason for the hope that you have because you're just like them, complaining like they all do. Thirdly, it empowers discipleship. Christian contentment empowers discipleship. This is a discipleship moment right here. Thank you for the money, let me talk about it. (laughs) He says earlier in that same chapter, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. That's discipleship, mentoring, role modeling. Friends, people are always watching. Non-Christians are watching, said that a moment ago, but Christians, your kids are watching, your children are watching how you suffer. 
Your friends are watching how you walk with the Lord through these things. If you can evidently, obviously be content in any and every situation, you will have an impact beyond anything you can measure. Fourth, it protects missionaries and other servants of Christ. It protects them. Now, understand this. When I taught this material to some Wycliffe Bible translators in um, Cameroon, one of them came up, a man I had just met, and he said, you know, I actually never thought that contentment was something that we should have. I didn't think it was a good thing. I mean, how can we be content when millions are dying without ever knowing Jesus? It's like, okay, <laughs> we're misunderstanding. I'm not talking about complacency. I'm not talking about laziness. I'm not talking about being okay with the status quo. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about cheerfully, trustingly submitting to what your father decides to do in everyday life. And frankly, without that, you'll give up on the mission field. Look what happened to Adoniram Judson after he buried his wife and his child and he dug his own grave and was ready to give up on life itself and especially on the mission. If contentment hadn't come in eventually, healing his heart and stabilizing him, he would not have continued and the mission to Burma would have been truncated. So Christian contentment will protect your commitment to missions over the long haul. And finally, Christian contentment protects holiness. Jeremiah Burroughs put it this way, it is as difficult to tempt a contempt a content man as it is to ignite an iron wall with a flaming arrow. So you, pi- you picture that. Here's this metal wall and Satan's flo- uh, just firing these flaming arrows of temptation. It just doesn't hit. Conversely, discontent people are easy to tempt. You get filled with self-pity. You get filled with a wandering heart. It can destroy a marriage. It can destroy a ministry if you're discontent. So contentment in any and every situation protects and actually fosters holiness. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the things that we've learned from Paul. There's so much more to learn, so many more things. And we pray that you would strengthen each one of us. Help us, O Lord, that we would learn the secret of Christian contentment. We get an opportunity every day to practice this. We get an opportunity to be well-fed or hungry. We get an opportunity perhaps to live in plenty or perhaps in want. Oh God, I pray that you would teach us through the little lessons to be strong in Christian contentment so that when the major trials come later, we'll be ready to shine brightly for you and give hope to the hopeless. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.